This is Criterion Cast Chronicles, Episode 4. Tonight we'll be discussing the May 2016 Criterion Collection lineup. Joining me tonight are Arik Devins. Hey, Arik. Hey there. I have David Blakesley. Hey, David. Hello. And we have Mark Herney. Hey, Mark. Hello, hello. All right, so we are back for Episode 4. Tonight we'll be discussing May 2016. Five releases, seven films. No Blu-ray upgrades in the strict definition of a Blu-ray upgrade, but we did have one breakout release from an existing box set. No Eclipse sets this time around either, but uh, seven pretty amazing films, I think. It was... Uh, I've, I keep saying this on every episode, but it's been a real joy to watch as many of these films as I can in the you know weeks leading up to these episodes. Uh, trying to keep up with uh, the Criterion Collection as they release these titles has been a lot more fun than kind of cramming at the end of the year. Let's jump into the first release of the month. This came out back on May 3rd. Easy Rider was broken apart from the BBS box set. This one uh, was released back in 2010 as a part of the America Lost and Found, the BBS story uh, box set, which was kind of fun to go back and, and revisit as, you know, that was one of the very first like little scoops that I had on our website was the the story that this was going to be a box set and it was the first set it was the first article that I wrote on our website that kind of got me in a little bit of trouble with the Criterion Collection <laughs> where I got like you know not an angry email but a like huh where did you hear this Ryan kind of email uh from the folks at Criterion and uh it was very it was it was a lot of fun and uh, it was fun to kind of go back and reread the article where I wrote about this and and think back to those early days of the website and the podcast. It's like when you hit the big time, you know, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Criterion's noticing and yeah. giving us some flack. <laughs> Memories. Yeah, something like that. Um, so this isn't the first uh, film, you know, split apart from that box set last year. Was it the year before they did Five Easy Pieces as a standalone release? Last year. Last year. And um, now they've decided to go with... Uh, Easy Rider. They're breaking up the band. They are. Uh, they, they refer to it as a breakout release, I think, in one of their Instagram posts for it. And so I, I liked, and I, maybe they said that also for uh, Brief Encounter. And I kind of like that description as a part from like a standalone release, just because like they're taking it out of the set. It's not an upgrade. It's, you know, it's already available on Blu-ray, but now people are able to go out and buy it individually. And, um, you know, it's, with with releases like this and upgrades, I guess in general, you know, we don't have to get too much into it just because this is a title that most of the people who are listening to this podcast probably already own in that box set. But Arik, you decided to take on the task of maybe talking about this release for anyone out there who's listening who maybe doesn't already own the box set and maybe wants to, um, you know, doesn't need all those films or want to buy all those films or can't afford all the films, and so. Um, but they, you know, they've heard of Easy Rider, as most people have, and this is the chance now to, you know, uh, pick up that release individually. So, uh, what do you have for us tonight for this one? Yeah, um, when when Five Easy Pieces was first announced as broken up, there was a lot of rumors going around that it was because maybe they'd lost the rights to Head. But then, with um, with brief uh, encounter, and then now this, I think that, like you said, I think they're just finding uh, titles in box sets that maybe they feel like uh, can support a standalone release outside of the context of the set and and, and just putting them out there. And uh, 
if they were if that's what they're doing, then I think they chose very very wisely with um, with Easy Rider, an absolute landmark film uh, of the sort of independent American uh, film movement of the of very very early 1970s. So um, Easy Rider for anyone who hasn't seen it, um, I'll just give a, a brief uh, synopsis. It's it's about uh, two men, Wyatt and Billy, who are played by uh, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. Who they also um, wrote, directed, produced. They they made the film, and they play sort of uh, freewheeling motorcyclists in a sort of western pastiche motorcycle thing. And they uh, this, the film opens with them completing a, a a big drug deal in Mexico and uh, and leaving for New Orleans just because they have always wanted to see Mardi Gras. And uh, they the the film follows them as they pick up hitchhikers, um, famously Jack Nicholson as a ACLU attorney, uh, get into all manner of um, interactions, uh, negative and positive, with uh, wary Southerners as they as they drive through America, and uh, and ultimately um, see some some very real things and uh, and deal with some very real issues. Uh, it's uh, it's an absolutely incredible film. So first of all, if you haven't seen it, I could not highly recommend it more. It when I I only first saw it uh, for my website a couple years ago, and it just absolutely blew me away. But so anyway, so the special features are not changed from the ones from the the, the BBS box set. But if you if you haven't uh, owned that previously, what you get is um, two audio commentaries, uh, one uh, newer one from 2009, and one from uh, 95, uh, and those feature. Uh, the 2001 features Dennis Hopper and the 95 features Hopper and Peter Fonda and the production manager Paul Lewis. There's also two documentaries, also one from uh, 99 and one from 2000, well, one from 99 and one from uh, 95. And uh, the one from 95 is kind of short. It's um, It's got some nice anecdotes. It's not particularly impressive. Uh, but there are some some nice stories, and then the one from '99 is is much longer and um, features most of the same anecdotes from '95, but but goes into a lot more detail and I think um, really sets up some interesting commentary on the film as a whole. I really like this one actually. It it gave me a, a bigger context in in terms of sort of how the film was made uh, and uh, how much I would or would not want to work with Dennis Hopper. Spoiler: It doesn't seem like you would want to work with Dennis Hopper, um, <laughs> but. Uh, and then there's a very, very, very short excerpt from uh, Hopper and Fonda at the Cannes Film Festival. They went to Cannes in 69, and and Hopper won Best New Filmmaker. Um, I It's only like two minutes long, but I actually really, really enjoyed it because uh, there's just something really endearing about watching Peter Fonda attempt to speak French and the French interviewer just asking him questions basically about whether every one of his famous relatives had seen the film. Um, and finally, there's a... Hmm. interview with um, BB, one of the BBS founders, the S in BBS, Steve Blauner, uh, which is part of the larger BBS story set that they had in the in the box. And uh, I have to say, if you're buying the standalone release, I, I, it seems a little weird that this is even on there because it doesn't really have that much to do with Easy Rider specifically. But you'll get some context, I guess, as to um, how the studio was created. Uh, again, spoiler, it's uh, Money from the Monkeys. So it's, uh, it's an absolute beautiful film. And uh, the, the packaging... For the uh, standalone release is is really nice. I mean, the cover is basically the same, but they remove kind of the tying into theme from the other releases, and I actually think I like the standalone cover better. And then the the, in, the inside looks great as well. So all in all, I'd say if you if you have the box set, obviously you're not going to buy this one, but uh, but if you don't, I, I think it's well well worth picking up. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on this one? Oh well, yeah. I mean, I I've kind of grown up with this film. This is definitely one of those uh, kind of 
seventies midnight stoner classics, you know, and so uh, <laughs> that that's been my kind of long running impression. I mean, I remember. Yeah, as I've probably said about other films from this era, kind of my first encounter was the Mad Magazine parody version, and <laughs> and uh, you know it just you know this, the the iconic you know Captain America and Billy, you know the the bikers, uh, you know kind of the little Western travelogue, uh, the you know smoking dope around the campfire at night and having your stoner philosophical conversations and stuff. I mean, I, I watch some of that stuff, and I just it's just kind of a. Uh, it just generates kind of giggles <laughs> to me because it just it, it is such a time capsule of a particular era where we look at it now and we listen to this there's some of it's just kind of vacant and and hippy dippy but this was kind of raggedy cutting edge stuff for its time and uh you know I'll be reviewing it somewhere in the months ahead as I go kind of you know grind my way through the chronology and all uh so it's on my watch list and i'll give it a fresh in-depth look but i just watched it again this afternoon just to kind of refresh my impressions and and honestly i think i like this film better as a part of a collection of a box set i mean you know i appreciate your you know your kind of positive uh, spin on it I, there's a certain slightness to the movie as as a film itself uh, but it is kind of a great adventure. I mean, you definitely, uh, you know, Dennis Hopper, he's he's just quite a character. And then, of course, Peter Fonda, you know, the, the son of Hollywood. And, and yet he's a, itching to break out and do his own thing and kind of, you know, cut against the grain a little bit. So uh, they conceived, uh, you know, a film and also said that, hey, let's have an adventure. Let's make a road movie. Let's uh, Let's kind of, you know, stick the finger up to square middle-class America. You know, if six was nine, Jimi Hendrix and, and kind of what, what uh, the, the, the Born to be Wild. I mean, just so much of that music just kind of has that rebellious uh, kind of attitude to it. And that's, I think, what just galvanized a, a huge audience for this movie and really showed Hollywood that, you know, you can you can do pretty well business-wise while still kind of bucking the system and, and challenging the status quo. And, uh, you know, so there was definitely kind of a cash-in on that, and, and you can sort of look at this film uh, from a cynical point of view or from an optimistic point of view and, and draw some interesting conclusions about what it meant in its time and and what that symbol you know, of, of the, of just the two free willing dudes rolling on their bike, you know, um, and, and then the, of course the, the, uh, the explosive climax of the film and kind of the brutal ending that these free spirits, uh, you know, came to and, and what they embodied, what they symbolized, uh, there's a certain heavy handedness to it, I guess the message of the film and how it all plays out. But it's it's uh you know it's the cry of a generation, <laughs> and and uh, I, I appreciate it for what it is. It's it's a it's a great revisit. Um, I'm not sure I would say this is great cinema, uh, but it's it's a couple of interesting dudes having an adventure and uh, making something pretty memorable uh, as they kind of break out of the mold a little bit with a phenomenal soundtrack. Yeah, that's uh, th- really the point that I was uh, thinking of. I actually saw this. Uh for the first time as part of the BBS box set digging into this uh, a while back. And uh, so it's not as, as fresh in my mind, but the I did pop it in and, oh, that soundtrack. <laughs> it is great. And it's almost, um, there is, much of the film is without dialogue. And so I, I don't want to say it's a silent film, but it has that kind of uh, moves along with the music uh, feel to it. 
Uh, and so, yeah, it's a really, I, I appreciated it for, for what it is as a road movie. I'm with you, David. I do want to watch this kind of by itself again, kind of take it all in again, uh, even more so than I did because it, it does fit well into um, the box set. It was kind of hit me over the head uh, after I watched Head. <laughs> it was a, a really nice, um, nice, uh, you know, we, moving into that box set. It's the second film, you know, that I watched in, uh, in seeing it. So, yeah, I, I you know, I'm, I agreed with, with Eric. I hope it's, I think it's great that they, uh, you know, separated it, that they've released it for uh, potentially a wider audience to see, just like Brief Encounter. And I hope that, uh, other folks do see it, and you know the box set's still in print. So, you know if you're uh, if you want to check it out, I I I'm with you, David. I think that's the the way to do it. See it as in in the context uh, for what it's meant. It will be interesting to see if they continue to break titles out. If this you know if this trend continues, if maybe the Last Picture Show is next. Seems like that would be the most obvious choice for them to go with. It's really the only other one, right? They're not going to do any of the others, I would imagine. Oh. Can't imagine, yeah. There were rumors of it going out of print too, the box set, but it's it's still there, still available. It is. Um, there was that monkeys box set that came out earlier this year, which included head in it, and like Eric said, that that was kind of the rumor going around or the theory that you know maybe head was taken out of print, and so they um, were going to lose the rights to it. But I mean, other things have gone out of print much more quietly than than this, and so um, yeah, yeah, doesn't seem like it. I wonder if this will be a title that ends up in places like Walmart or Target where, you know, they have maybe one or two Criterion Collection editions of, of films. It seems like this would be a, those would be good places for something like Easy Rider to show up and maybe expose people to the Criterion Collection who might not otherwise know about it. Yeah, hit that middle-aged biker crowd. You know? Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, I I think so, I, I, and I I really do. I mean, I I would say I like this film significantly more than either David or Mark, but I I just you know I just hope it finds an audience uh, that maybe it didn't have when it was in a in a bigger set. So the next release, which came out uh, the following week on May tenth, uh, Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place. This one was teased at on the wacky uh, email newsletter drawing where there was the little stack of plates, who were so alone. And now we have a Blu-ray edition and DVD edition of Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place. A fantastic release, I think. This is one of, um, you know, one of the shorter films, I think, uh, of this whole month. Um, I guess like Easy Rider is 95 minutes, uh, In a Lonely Place, 93 minutes. So maybe the shortest film in the collection. Although, wait, wait Naked Island, six, oh, 90, Naked Island 96. 96. 96 yeah. minutes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a nice, you know, a nice collection of shortish films. I mean, usually we're we're so accustomed to, you know, the five hour long uh, yeah, Brighter the Summer Day. Immigrants in the New Land. Yeah. And, yeah brighter Summer Day. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this time it was like, Paris you know, belongs to us. Wasn't that like two and a half hours, two or something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do have the Road Trilogy box set to squeeze in. And the player is, a, you know, is a little over two hours, but uh, I don't think either of those, like the the Road Trilogy movies or the player, feel as long as maybe they are. Um, and then these shorter ones, you know, they're just, uh, you know, very economical in in how they get their stories across, especially in a lonely place, which, you know, has such a kind of simple story of this uh, screenwriter who's um, being investigated for a murder, or he's the prime suspect in a murder, and he. Um, you know, 
falls in love with this woman who is, you know, potentially a witness to, or I guess she is, you know, as much of a witness as there is for his, uh, you know, his whereabouts the night of the murder. And uh, he falls in love with her while they um, are being investigated by the police. He has a very short temper, is very quick to uh, threaten people. And so that's why the police are, you know, he's, you know, suspect number one in this case, but well, he gets pretty assaultive, really. I mean, he's not just threatening. He's not just barking. He's throwing the fists, you know. He's, and, and, he's abusive. Yeah. He is abusive. Yeah. Uh, but also very witty. I think this, you know, and a pretty funny script, I think. Uh, you know, kind of making, teasing at Hollywood a little bit. I mean, it's kind of insidery in that it's, you know, it's one of those movies about movies. In a way, you know, it's not exactly about movies, but it's about Hollywood. It's about the... Um, you know, the kind of environment that it creates, the people that uh, are drawn to it, um, you know, the types of personalities that, um, you know, rise up or are beaten down in it. Uh, Humphrey Bogart is the main character, Dixon Steele, the screenwriter, and he just does an amazing job. It's It's been a pretty fantastic year so far for uh, for Humphrey Bogart on Blu-ray. The Warner Archive has put out a number of, of his of films starring him uh, on Blu-ray recently, and so I just recently watched Dark Passage, and uh, it was fun to go back and rewatch In a Lonely Place. Uh, in addition to that, Ark, you just put up your your review of the film. Is this the first time that you had seen it? Yeah, uh huh, absolutely, yeah. And as I said in my review, I was not at all. I knew nothing. You know, I just watched it because we were doing this, and I always like to pick the one I'm leading and then another one just so I've you know seen at least two of them because I haven't seen as many of these films as as say David probably has, um, or Mark, or you. Uh, and so, so yeah, I just watched this and I was, you know, so if, if you go to cinemagadfly.com, you'll, you'll see what I, what I said about it. But I, I really was, um, shocked by the, the, um, honesty of the portrayal of an abusive person from the, from the time period. I mean, the movie's from 1950, right? And it was, um, it was very surprising how, uh, willing they were to examine the toxicity of this of this guy, even as he, yes, as you say, is very witty. It's very funny and stuff like that. But he's just a, a bad, bad guy. And um, I, I really enjoyed watching the film uh, quite a bit. And then, as you said, I think the the special features on this one are are uh, well, especially the the um, the documentary uh, "I'm a Stranger Here Myself." I'm assuming you're going to talk about that, but I thought that was absolutely incredible. Um, yeah. What What did you? I mean, what did you find incredible about it? Well, so it's a, it's a, I, it started, and I thought it was a pretty normal doc, but so I didn't know that much about Nicholas Ray. And, and, you know, he spent the last couple years of his life teaching this weird sort of commune film program. Uh, and, uh, and it was like, they, they ended up making a movie that I really want to see now. I don't know if any of you have seen it, the, the film that came out of that, that school, but the, the following him around and his students as they're going through this very intense period and he's just in his eye patch and kind of walking around, uh, discussing, you know, his his reasons why the film ends the way it does and, and all this. I just thought it was a really interesting, you know, a lot of the documentaries on these movies are very straight ahead docs, like, you know, a bunch of, like the Easy Rider ones, just a, a bunch of people talking heads with their names and stuff. And this was just a very different approach to a, to learning more about this because the students were kind of asking him questions about In a Lonely Place and, and just about him in, in general. And, and I, I don't know, I found it very compelling. The film commentary was written, was uh, done by Dana Poland, who also did the um, the BFI uh, film classics book for the for the film, which is uh, a pretty nice commentary track, I think, from someone like that. I really enjoyed the uh, 
kind of the uh, introduction to me of Gloria Graham. I mean, I'd, I'd seen the mm-hmm. film years ago, kind of uh, one of these kind of oldies TV movie of the week type of thing. But I didn't really know who she was or what she represented. But uh, there was a special feature about kind of her side of it. And I think, yeah, you know, there's a lot of focus, obviously, on the Bogart character. And we've talked about that a little bit. But I think, you know, she, as a woman uh, kind of drawn to this man with this kind of dark, dangerous side, um, just it was very fascinating just to sort of get a a glimpse of her. I guess she was a, a fairly significant star of her time where maybe her reputation hasn't held up. I mean, I, I could be completely off base. Maybe there's this cult of <laughs> Gloria Graham followers out there, but uh, she was really kind of a new new presence to me. So I, I really appreciated that. And, and then the character she plays is just this, you know, she's just a woman. Obviously, she's going to have a reputation as a little bit on the loose side or, or a little bit uh, scandalous. But, uh, yeah, the, this, this, this couple uh, does feel very modern much more so than what you would think of for for the year that this film came out and uh, i think i think her her role and, and her uh, performance is really just as crucial to making this film as memorable as as bogart's was so i wanted to really emphasize that yeah david there's a there's a an excellent episode of the uh, you must remember this podcast about gloria graham it's, it's okay great. Yeah, I, I'll look for that. The other thing, too, I did listen to the radio adaptation just because I, I know we kind of talk about that sometimes and not all of us get around to those. But I, did, I definitely did. It's, it's an hour long. It's uh, an episode of suspense. You know, it's, just, it's really interesting <laughs> in this in this kind of old timey radio. It's it's very exaggerated and it's quite remarkable because you the, the radio adaptation is very closely uh, based on the book that was written. Uh, you know, for which the movie was based on. And that gives you a very clear kind of uh, contrast from what the, you know, the, the woman author, Dorothy, I can't remember her last name now, but she, uh, she wrote the story and, and Bogart and Ray really changed the story quite radically, actually. I mean, they, they kept the name Dixon Steele and the setting, you know, a Hollywood screenwriter and, and kind of his, you know, conflicted, uh, angry, uh, morally ambiguous persona. But from that point, the story goes in very different directions. So uh, that, that shows you the intentionality of what Bogart and Ray, who really had a big influence in, in the, bringing this story to the screen and, and crafting it the way they did, what they were trying to say. So I, I really do recommend listening to the radio adaptation. Like I say, it'll cost you an hour of time. But if you really want to sort of see where the story began and where it wound up in the what's now probably become the definitive version, uh, definitely recommend that. Might be something good to kind of have on, you know, in the background while you're you're doing something. You know, you can just listen to it. I know I've done that before with the uh, the radio adaptations. Yeah, my wife was making a quilt the other night, and she's like, <laughs> "Wow, this guy's really twisted." <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, she's. Uh, I, I I knew Gloria Graham. I think most from. Well, of course, she was in It's a Wonderful Life, but I, I knew her most from The Big Heat. Uh, the Fritz Lang film, I've seen that a couple times, uh, available and not available and available again from Twilight Time. It's another really, really nice noir, and it was nice to see her in this again, just caught up, uh, caught up with it very recently. And uh, yeah, it's really glad this is in the collection. Love the ending. Uh, really nice to see, like Ryan said, some more 
Bogart here. Um, always love a chance to to check that out. So another uh, great release. So the next release that came out on uh, May 17th, another one that which has been teased at uh, on the Criterion's on Criterion's uh, wacky New Year's drawing, uh, Kaneda Shindo's Naked Island. This one uh, was previously available on the Hulu Plus uh, channel and is now available to watch on iTunes. Um, David, you had a chance to go through this disc. Uh, what did you think of it? David, I'm sorry, but before you get started, you have to carry two buckets of water uh, <laughs> up the hill to your abode before we can get started. So l- let us know when you're done. Well, uh, just don't slap me when I drop one of those buckets. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's a spoiler for you. So yeah, this is a this is definitely a release I was very eager to see. I had watched this film uh, probably a few couple years ago. This was back when I was still at the 1960 point in my Criterion chronology. And even though I didn't blog about it, I think I did actually mention it somewhere. I watched it just because I was intrigued by this idea of, uh, you know, uh, Shindo and, and kind of his, his you know, breakout film. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, unusual, unique movie, uh, even amongst all the variety and all the you know, creativity of Japanese cinema as it really was going through this transition from kind of that classical golden era, you know, the big three, uh, Ozu, Kurosawa, Mizuguchi, and all the other, you know, great contemporary directors of that time. You know, by the end of the 50s, you, know, you had the Sun Tribe films, and you just had so many different things happening as, as kind of the generations shifted. And Shindo was one of those uh, directors who had come up through that system but was really eager to sort of make a statement of his own. And he was the founder of a very influential early independent studio. Um, I, I'll, I'll botch the pronunciation, so I'm not going to try to you know create it here. But he, he had created a, a studio with a you know, kind of a couple of... Uh, kind of a couple of partners and uh, having mixed results kind of put all of his chips on this particular film they were very close to just going bankrupt and kind of you know calling it a career almost I mean it really was almost like the last gasp effort and he said well if this is our last film I'm going to make a film completely on my terms without any commercial uh, you know considerations or, or affectations at all which is a pretty ballsy move when it's like you know you're thinking this is your last stand you're not even going to try to go for the the mainstream Uh, but what he did is he created a film uh, about a family living on this basically barren island it's basically almost like a, a hill sticking up out of the inland sea in japan and this family had taken it upon themselves to uh you know uh take this little patch of land which was in a very hot and dry kind of southern part of Japan very little rainfall and uh, they were going to grow crops there they they planted sweet potatoes and and wheat and uh, this film basically documents in a way their life and all the hardships and all the you know all the toil that they go through uh, as mark kind of alluded to there's a lot of carrying water in this film and we're not talking about metaphorically this is literally carrying water um, uh, because there's there's no natural source of water on this island and so what we see is this the film kind of opens with this couple uh, kind of sculling their way in this little, kind of looks like a rowboat, but it's propelled by one oar out of the back that you have to sort of, 
you know, push and pull back and forth to, to, to get the boat moving. And it's, it's a fairly, you know, rigorous and, and wearisome technique, but that's just how they get around. And so the, the film is really just a meditation on the perseverance and the dedication and the hardship that, uh, this particular family endures. And so, uh, Lo and behold, this film turned out to be quite a success on the international art house circuit. Uh, Shindo's reputation was established. It, 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 it launched him into a career that lasted for literally the next 50 years. And uh, the remarkable thing is that he was already like 48 years old when this film came out. And he continued making films all the way up to 2010 uh, when he turned 100 years old. And his last film, Postcard, which I've referred to in different episodes, uh, I reviewed a couple years ago uh, the Portland uh, International Film Festival that was screened there. And uh, he actually refers to this film. There's a, there's a commentary track, or not a commentary track, but there, oh, there is a commentary track featuring Shindo, but there's also a short feature, an interview with him that takes place back in 2012 when uh, his final film was touring the United States and he came to Brooklyn uh, along with Benicio del Toro, who also gives an interview. And uh, he, you know, Shindo talks about his last film and what it means to him. Uh, Shindo himself was descended from a family of farmers, and uh, this film really extols the virtues, if you will, of the farming life as well as the, you know, as as well as the um, the labor and and the uh, the deprivations that they have to go through. So the question is, what about this movie? I mean, is this really a, a documentary or a, an illustration of how Japanese people live? Um, it it's not really that it's it's it really is kind of a long extended metaphor but it's it's a story that's told quite beautifully quite elegantly there's there's almost well there isn't there's no dialogue there's no conversation at all in, during the film you do hear the sound of human voices but it's more like some singing and some kind of grunting and exclamations but there's nobody talking to each other uh it's a very visual film uh, with a very uh, kind of uh, repetitious but very lyrical musical theme that's used quite strategically. There's a few other bits of music here and there, and it's it is it's just a big composition, very meditative, very atmospheric. Um, I think it's just a wonderful work of art, but it's not necessarily one that you should take literally it's and and that's where shindo drew some criticism from some of his peers because they felt he was maybe inadvertently but in a certain sense playing into uh some some stereotypes of you know sort of oriental exoticism of oh the rustic simplicity of the japanese peasants and and that's not exactly what he was going for but i think that's where some people maybe took it that way uh this is really a a, a look at the Japanese character and what the Japanese people had been through as a society uh, throughout the years of war and rebuilding and pushing forward uh, when life becomes very discouraging and disappointing. I won't get into some of the plot details, but there's definitely some beyond just the, the daily you know burdens and struggles of growing crops in this really arid environment. There's some other things that happen that the characters have to adapt to and uh, uh to me it's just very moving it's it's it, it puts me into sort of this 
mental and I'll even say spiritual space as I just watch it that uh, you know there's there are some challenges but to and it's not exactly a soothing happy-go-lucky film by any means but it is it's it's a film that just sort of gets me in touch with things and I, and and that's what I really appreciate about it uh, David it's it's been a long time since I studied Japanese in college but I'm pretty sure that the film company he started is pronounced Kindai Aiga Kyokai. That's great. Well, thank you for for clarifying that. I just I didn't have my I I've got the lights turned off and I don't have the book in front of me, so I wasn't even <laughs> I, I might have been able to read it off the page. I just didn't have that information right in front of me. But but yeah, and and you know I talked about postcard. That's the same production company that produced his final film fifty years later, which I just think is really incredible. Cool. Yeah. That this this company this this independent studio that was really on the brink of collapse uh got that second wind and and there it was 50 years later still doing its thing yeah i i really i took the opportunity to uh, check this one out and uh i really just caught up with the film itself but uh, i it really it's almost hypnotizing i, I don't know how to exactly. describe that's it, a, David. that's a great yeah. word yeah is that hypnotizing it, but i don't know a way that takes control of you it's just it's very reflective yep. it's it's contemplative it's it's a really beautiful film uh, but again i just want to caution people don't don't think that this is i mean people living on that little island would know how to get electricity <laughs> they would know how to get water they they wouldn't necessarily go through this incredibly rigorous grind of uh, i mean because what you see is they're they're rowing ashore they're getting two oaken buckets full of water and they're carrying them across their shoulders like an ox with a yoke on it and then trudging their way up a very steep hill and then ladling out little scoops of water for each individual plant i mean it just seems incredibly you know inefficient and uh, laborious and kind of a waste of time so you know don't don't just think that that shindo is saying oh this is this is how we live this is what our our uh you know peasant uh peers in japan have to go through every day i mean he is he is drawing on that rustic agricultural heritage that 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 uh you know he he hails from but there's something else being said in all those images made me appreciate life's conveniences, uh, especially uh, yes. running water, you know, that much more and watching it. I just, yeah, it made me, made me reflect on that. And I did note that the first words in the film that I noticed were at the 54 minute mark when the father says heave ho. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's about as expressive as it gets. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. There's a new book coming out from this, uh, publisher Kaya press K A Y A that's coming out in, July called Life is Work, uh, which is a collection of writings by Kaneda Shindo. Um, it's actually going to feature the entire screenplay for whatever that m- might be uh, for the Naked Island in, in the book. Yeah. Um, One page on the back, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> there's an interesting comment. Uh, there, there, there is a commentary track between Shindo and the musical composer. Again, his name is not in front of me. But it's it's very fascinating because Shindo, this was recorded 
I think back in 2000, so he was about 90 years old. So there's a lot of dialogue, and, and Shindo himself is just great. Like, uh, mm, <laughs> you know, as, as the other guys talk, and it's like, you know, you, you, you hear a lot of that kind of stuff in Ozu films, you know, as the old gents are sitting around drinking their sake. Uh. <laughs> but, but, but that, you know, that's not an affectation. It's just how old Japanese men talk. And so, so it's just kind of fun, even if you're not. There are there are subtitles. So listening to a commentary track and reading subtitles that may be a little bit of a burden or a hurdle for some people, but it's definitely worth the effort. But one of the things he said is that you know his his camera crew thought, oh, this movie's going to be be a cinch. You know, we'll whip right through this. So they saw this thin little script, but it's like you know they really planted these potatoes and they really planted that wheat, and some of them actually lived on that island. And Shindo has a little bit of this heroic aspect to his filmmaking uh, another film he made a few years later onibaba which takes place in this really kind of tall grassy swampy marshland it's kind of this kind of horror type story uh, well shindo and his crew built this structure out in the middle of this marsh and they had to deal with like insects and floods and torrential rains and and real misery but that was the dedication that that he expected of his crew to to not just make a movie and go back to the hotel but to really inhabit this this hostile environment and so uh, the naked island has a pretty great making of story behind it as well uh there's very much a, a zen feel to all of this very much uh you know well not so much chop wood but a lot of carry water <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that there aren't more of his films in the collection. I mean, there's only the three mm. films, uh, Naked yep. Island, Onibaba, and Kuraneko, and then they also have The Fighting Elegy and Zadoichi's Pil Pilgrimage, which he wrote the screenplays for. Um, and I guess most of those are all on Hulu, except for the Zadoichi film. But uh, it's interesting that they, or at least the Zadoichi film is probably not listed when I, when you search for him, but... Um, I don't know. It seems like all of, most of the other Japanese directors, they just have this, you know, huge archive of films, uh, you know, in their collection that they haven't put out on disc yet. But so far, we have discs for all of his films now. Yeah, well, I'd like to see more. I mean, again, postcard would be a really wonderful addition. I've actually got that playing in the background on my on my TV right now, and it's it's a film about his life. And and just real quickly, he he was. Uh, drafted into the Japanese military in the spring of 1945. So, you know, do your history. I mean, this is like basically the very last legs of the Japanese you know, war machine uh, right before the atomic bombs are going to drop. And out of the 100 men that were recruited in this, this class, he was maybe one of one or two or three survivors. I mean, certainly was in single digits. And so here's this guy who by all means should have just died you know, in the cannon fodder of the last stages of the war. Not only did he live, but he lived to be 100 years old and made films for the next, you know, 60 years of his life. So quite a remarkable character and story. And he was still very alert, you know, and, and spry. I mean, that, that interview with him in Brooklyn in 2011, you know, the year before he passed on, uh, he's still talking and he's still pretty sharp. And, and I could see why he's still capable of making movies at the, what, seems like a pretty advanced age so it, obviously there's a lot more where this came from and i think i would i would just love the chance to see more of what he did uh later on in his career all right well let's move on now to the next release in may this one uh out on may 24th 
Robert Altman's The Player. Uh, Once Upon a Time, this was released on Criterion Laserdisc, and now it is back. They have uh, been, you know, it seems like while they haven't been upgrading as many DVDs, they have been going back and getting some of the old Laserdiscs back uh, into the collection and now available uh, on Blu-ray and DVD. The, this is the 1992 film from Robert Altman, and such a fun film. Mark, you had a chance to uh, watch this one. Uh, tell me, tell us a little bit about uh, your experience with it. Yeah, so this is a it's a comeback from Laserdisc, and Mr. Robert Altman would tell you to not call it a comeback for him uh, at this time frame. Uh, it, many people considered it that in 1992, and you know, in a lot of the supplements, he kind of refers to that. I, I think he understands that people see it as that for him, and uh, you know, it did bring him back into the public consciousness, I think, and made him, I don't want to say relevant again, but did allow him to make shortcuts uh, after this. So, but really, you know, I do have to reference uh, as Larry uh, Levy in The Player would say coming off of uh, The Naked Island, um, it's an art movie. It doesn't count. We're talking about movie movies here. <laughs> so <laughs> if you've seen The Player, you'll know the the reference. Um, yeah, this is uh, it, this was a first time watch for me, and I just you know relished the opportunity to see it. Um, this was a favorite of a friend of mine, Keith Silva, who had back in high school he watched the, an old copy. Uh, you guys have probably heard of this VHS thing. Um, that uh, he it was really something that opened up his eyes to cinema, and so I was interested to watch it. Um, you know. F- for that and to see um, what what that brought to it. And as far as Altman goes, um, my first foray into Altman was uh, with Three Women, and uh, which is a really strange film to, to start with. Uh, it was the film, um, it was upgraded to Blu-ray, a really odd film that he came up with when he was um, in a dream, really. And I, But I just, I loved Shelley Duvall's performance, and I just loved how uh, she she was in that film. I would say she even, uh, when I was younger, scared me more in The Shining than Jack Nicholson did. So, um, you know, bringing her back and kind of seeing her in that role was eye-opening. And so, I, you know, I've seen some other Altman. And I really wanted to see some later uh, Altman like this. And, uh, yeah, it's it's great. It's so – there's so much – to it. I called it kind of a, a weird, for lack of a better word, noir very uh, early on. I think the the music is there, uh, but the, the film is itself, it's so, um, you know, so self and Hollywood referential, of course. I mean, that's really um, what it's about. And there's so many different layers. I mean, layers upon layers upon layers. And he, you even, you get a reference to what makes um, a good movie in the suspense, laughter, violence, hope, heart, nudity, sex, and happy ending um, that is referenced by um, Gill in the film, and uh, we get that in this this film too. So it's you could just see the film's kind of turning in on itself uh, throughout, and you know the more I watched and delved into it, I, the more I appreciated it. I they I was considering. The, I mean, I should mention the film itself is about a studio executive. Um, Tim Robbins, he finds himself caught up in a criminal situation, um, and it would be really right at home in one of his movie projects. And um, it really is an industry satire for Hollywood. And um, the 
I, I loved the use of the classic movie posters in this film. I think you could go on, and I'm sure people have, a player marathon where you just watch all the films uh, that are in movie posters. I mean, he actually focuses them on um, on them in the film. And most of them are B-movies, many I hadn't heard of, but I'm figuring they must be, you know, they're probably Altman favorites. And it, it ties nicely into the menu too, which is a, a nice collage of the, the movie posters from the player uh, when you uh, see that in the, the Criterion disc itself. I think they talk a little bit about that in one of the documentaries where they mentioned that they tried to keep it feeling you know, uh, of a time period, like, you know, year, like decades ago, even though it still kind of feels contemporary where it, mm. you know, it kind of feels like a film noir set in the fifties with all those posters and everything. And even the way that people kind of dress and talk. Um, but then, you know, it also at the same time feels like, you know, there's, we're in the modern era. There's, there's regular cars, there's cell phones, there's, you know, right. fancy water and everything. Yeah, it just makes it makes for a, just a strange kind of dichotomy with with uh, those those elements and yeah, it's it certainly I think it rewards repeat viewings. It's a bit long, really, for what you might consider a noir at you know two hours. I always think of them at you know an hour and a half, but um, but you know lots of self uh, well film references, of course, to like the opening of Touch of Evil. I love how they're referencing that when we're getting, you know, an opening shot that is, of course, very well known at eight minutes long in this film that uh, they it, it's funny, it didn't take them that long to, to do it. I believe they finished that shot in about a day and a half. Um, 12 takes, 13 takes, something like that. Um, he, they talk about how he like how he choreographed everything using little uh, toys, like little toy cars and things. Right, right. Playing with his Tonka trucks, yeah. I think the uh, yeah. the writer was saying, <laughs> or no, his brother was saying. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, And they did, I mean, you would figure with something like this, it is an important film uh, for Robert Altman, and, you know, nice to see it in the collection. It seems like he's getting a bit of a, you know, gradual renaissance in the collection. And, you know, they did bring the 1992 audio commentary back, which is, it's a bit of an odd commentary. I think it's great. It's fascinating, uh, but it's a bit odd because I think all of the uh, the audio was recorded separately between, you know, Robert Altman, the director, writer, Michael Tonkin, and um, the cinematographer, uh, Jean Lapine, because they, they didn't really talk to each other. They just kind of like uh, Tolkien will reference Altman uh, by his last name sometimes. So it's a bit odd, but I think they just edited it together um, by, you know, the the parts of, of what they were saying and who was saying, you know, something most interesting at the time. So I'm sure, I'm sure commentaries have been done like that before, but it's been a while since I've um, heard one like that. And there's a number of, there are some new uh, supplements. There's the planned improvisation. That's a new documentary uh, with uh, a lot of players like Tim Robbins and some of the, the folks that I had just mentioned, a really nice a new one at 46 minutes. And um, there is a interview with Altman that goes back to 1992. There was a DVD snapper case release. I think it was New Line back uh, back then. And uh, surprisingly, I had a lot of fun with the the Cannes press conference. I wasn't sure how that would play, but um, I noticed most of the questions were to Mr. Altman, um, which is you know probably not a surprise. And at first, he didn't seem like he he wanted to be there, but he was uh, really able to reference and speak to based on the movie that he had just made. It was a way for him to comment on 
um, the where movies are at today and what kinds of films are being made and really kind of making the audience complicit in the the types of movies that we're getting saying you know if you keep buying tickets to these you know god-awful films these the Hollywood blockbusters then those are the ones that are going to get made and it's hard to get these uh, these other ones made and of course he, he does reference um, some of our own favorites. He's he's one of us guys uh, to reference the, the the freaks reference in the film. He's a fan of. You know, he grew up with Kurosawa, Bergman, uh, Ray, and Fellini, of course. So yeah, it's um, really really nice. I mean, the, and the the maps to the stars. I thought that was a really nice look at um, that. Really, probably the best use of a, uh, a photo gallery that I've seen. So I was able to see some of the the people that I had missed in the in the film itself. Um, so yeah, and some, some deleted scenes, uh, that there was one in particular, I think the Columbia bar and grill kind of give you a look into the Larry Levy and Griffin mill, what the, um, their, uh, relationship, uh, may have been like, and really breaking down the opening shot with a couple of commentaries. So really stacked, uh, Blu-ray as I, as I would have hoped that this, this was a fantastic release. Yeah, I think this release might be, you know, next to the vendors box set, this is probably mm-hmm. my favorite release of the month just because it was so much fun to go back and rewatch uh, the movie itself and see all of these amazing character actors, people that are almost unrecognizable uh, in these roles back then. Like Vincent D'Onofrio is as David Kahane. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I didn't recognize him at first. Like I, I saw his name in the credits. I watched the movie and then I was like, where was he in this film? And then I went back and looked and realized that he's the screenwriter. Um, and you just, I mean, he looks nothing like he does now as, you know, the, the Kingpin in daredevil. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice to, and some of the folks you, when he had set up the, the people that were in it, I mean, he didn't pay these people. They were just, uh, from what I understand, they were just there and, he he told them you may be in the film, you may not. We may see the back of your head, and if from the <laughs> the maps to the stars, uh, you know it, the uh, supplement. Some of them we just did see the back of their heads, so it was uh, quite a quite a who's who of of um, of people, and it it seem, it really fits well with his the way he has you know the the way he constructs scenes, and of course everyone knows the overlapping dialogue of of Altman. Um, you know it really just captures uh that those people so well i think of the the scene um with uh with burt reynolds where the the focus just shifts um from their conversation to uh, mill's conversation um just a you know perfect kind of encapsulation of uh involvement i love the whole subplot with dean stockwell and richard grant as the like <laughs> like pitching the movie and, and yes. seeing it through and yeah. then you get to see the result of it and you see you know what has been compromised and it's so funny Oh yeah, it's such a such a nice tie-in. Yeah, Dean Stockwell is great. Probably my favorite actor in the film. Yeah. He's hilarious. Tim Robbins too. Man, he is just uh, he is amazing to watch. I mean, he is just he's so in in the zone. I guess in in this role, uh, he's just he's perfect. Yeah. Well done. So I haven't seen the player, but, you know, looking at uh, In a Lonely Place, you know, Hollywood in the late 40s, player, Hollywood in the late, yeah, what's what's the transition? I mean, what do you see as far as, you know, the character arc of the city? <laughs> well, no, it's fascinating but, yeah. to watch these two because it's, you know, like two different murder investigations, uh, you know, from different angles with different motives and whatnot, but it's 
it's a fun pair to have released in the same month. Yeah, it seems like a pretty interesting uh, thematic type of connection there. Uh, yeah, maybe coincidental, but yeah, I, I, you know, Criterion plans these things out. I think there's got to be a of little bit of forethought there. Yeah, I'm. I'm not quite sure if um, you know, Tim Robbins can hold a candle to Humphrey Bogart, but you know he does a good job. In no this one film. can. He, he certainly is. No, <laughs> he certainly does. Uh, you know, he he was uh, Altman's Altman's pick. He does a good job. It was interesting to hear how much of the movie was improvised and how much of it was, you know, not very much of it was scripted, but they had kind of an outline of what they were working with and. But so much of it would change along the way. And the interviews with Tim Robbins now where he's going back and remembering that the the making of the movie was fun to just see, like, you know, he talks about um, like telling Altman, you know, oh, this is what the ending should like describing the ending as this uh, kind of having it be the pitch of the movie that we just saw. Uh, that, was, yes. that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, his his idea. Yeah, I, I loved in the commentary. There was a. a um again thinking of Altman where uh, the writer Tallinn is talking about how every actor was wearing a radio controlled microphone um, which you know you, you think of with all the the dialogue that's going on how do they capture it and edit it together and they've got these those microphones with them and that just helps with the the sound mix later it gives the actors freedom freedom to just speak they don't have to you know hit marks they can just you know um, speak and then uh, you know it's put together later in the the editing I thought that was really uh, nice to hear their voices on the the commentary. It's a good listen. And then also, the, the, he t uh, Tim Robbins, I think, talks a little bit about how during that opening shot when they're when he's moving around from window to window, and you know you're hearing little snippets of conversation, like the idea that in those rooms they really had no idea, or they had very little idea of when the camera was behind them, actually focusing on them. I mean, they had it all right. choreographed, but they had to kind of you know, from like cues from people off to the side of the, of the set where they could, you know, like maybe give them a little hand gesture or something to say like, okay, the camera's on you now. Uh, or, you know, like, okay, you're, you're having, you're in the middle of this conversation. Like how do you plan that conversation to, to keep going if you're improving it in the moment? And, uh, it was, it's fun to think about the logistics of things like that. Yeah. I was thinking of, uh, we just talked about the, uh, Fassbender film, world on a wire and how you know he would uh fastbender would just kind of walk on a set and you know he didn't want to see the set ahead of time he just walked on the set and he put the shot together and it seemed like altman was the, very similar to that you know, he didn't decide what kind of direction he wanted to shoot uh, probably except for that opening shot uh, but until he arrived on the set there's very kind of a, a loose uh, feel to it i think yeah and uh i guess moving on to the vendor set i mean a lot of that i don't if anyone here has dug into the the road trilogy box set yet, but vendors talks about that that same kind of idea where they would, um, you know, they were they did so much of these three movies uh, on you know very little budget and they had a very small crew and you know one of the films kind of goes through Germany and they're moving you know from the north to the south and then uh, somewhere along the line they kind of they they had a plan of where they were going but at a certain point they just turned around and went a different way. And uh, just because he was starting to get bored and he didn't want to, he wanted to kind of test himself and, you know, stretch the limits of what he uh, was comfortable with. And so they went off and, you know, and because it was such a small crew, they could, they could do that. They could just turn around and like, you know, do something else and go make the movie that, and, you know, the, the road trilogy, I think is probably, you know, 
going to be one of my favorite releases of the year. Uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, I mean, I'm just like a, I love road trips. And as I've gotten older, you know, and obviously I'm not that old, uh, but I, <laughs> I feel the, 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 uh, just the like exhaustion of even thinking about a road trip. Uh, I, you know, my, my butt starts to hurt when I think about sitting in a car for that long. Uh, but I, but man, I love road trips. And so watching these movies, watching these, you know, watching, um, what's his name? Uh, Rudiger Vogler, uh, as you know, as essentially vendors is like his counterpart in these movies. Um, you know, driving across Germany and in, or, you know, driving across the U S and Alice in the cities. Um, it's just, you know, it makes me, it's kind of just like vicarious, you know, road trips, uh, in these films. And, um, but yeah, the, the, f- the three films, Alice in the Cities, Wrong Move and Kings of the Road. Uh, these are ones we, I think it was back in 2011 when vendors gave a little quote to someone saying that they were, that Criterion was working on his films, that Amer- the American friend was going to be coming soon. And obviously we had to wait, you know, four years from when that was first teased at. And so it, every year we kept thinking oh surely this is the year when we're going to get that vim vendors road trilogy box set and it just kept getting pushed off and um they you know the the vendors uh institute the his little organization that he put together to help restore these films and and preserve them um there's a little documentary on in the box set showcasing what they did and you know what inspired them all of his films were kind of being held by different people in different states and so he was able over the years to kind of gather together the negatives and help restore the films to what we now have on these blu-rays um which are just beautiful they're they're you know they're works of art and i think uh, as i watch more and more of his films i find myself thinking that he's i i I think he might be my favorite director in the Criterion Collection right now, and maybe it's just because I watched wow. this box set. But he is just—I, I, you know, there's a there's a great little interview with him. Um, and it's not little; it's about an hour long uh, on on the Wrong Move disc, which is called what is this supplement called? It's like three. Mm, I'm forgetting uh, three for the road. There's this interview with Vin Benders, and it's just so fascinating to watch him. He is like. He's not the most emotive person talking in interviews. He often seems very kind of grim and sad when he's talking about these joyous occasions. And he's maybe it's just the German part of him. He's just German. Yeah, exactly. He's just German. (laughs) (laughs) But it's uh, I hear him telling these stories and it's just they're so beautiful. And he is just so uh, he's living the dream of the artist creating films. And I just I. I want to be him. I want to do what he's doing. I want to go, like, <laughs> I don't want to just talk about movies. I want to go make movies. I want to go paint and take pictures and do all the stuff that he that he does. And um, I mean, I, I I posted some pictures of this book that I have of his called Once, which is a collection of photographs that he t- has taken over the years and um, alongside, uh, you know, little bits of writing that he did. And they kind of read as poems. I mean, Many of them are poems, but um, but they're also kind of describing what he saw and, you know, in his travels across um, across Germany, across the States and in making all of the, you know, the road trilogy movies and making Paris, Texas. And uh, they're just it's it's so beautiful. And it's it's fun because they I think Jason Hardy, who did the design work for um, 
the actual box set, which, you know, looks a lot like, you know, kind of Polaroid imagery where you're getting this white border around this, this image. Um, and, and, and along with like the handwritten titles, um, uh, make it feel like, you know, a box of, of photographs that you're about to open up here. And, I don't know. There's so much great stuff in here. There's there's other little short films from vendors in the box set. There's um, many interviews uh, with um, you know with Ru- Rudy Vogler and the, a number of other actors. There's um, I think on the the wrong move one. There's a number of uh, like Super Eight footage just you know with just music behind it, and you're just seeing kind of snippets of things that they captured while they were making the movies. And it's a nice little you know almost like a music video in a way but it's just it's so beautiful i think and when i took uh, a trip through germany like 10 years ago and um taking the train around and seeing some of this footage you know and seeing the the movies themselves just brought me back to traveling through europe and you know made me want to go back there and it's uh it's a fantastic release and it's, it's something that i want to keep going back to and rewatching you know anytime i feel like Oh, these, uh, you know, anytime I watch movies, like I just recently watched like Gods of Egypt and it was so terrible. It's just like, it like, <laughs> dr- like drains the, uh, you know, I don't know if it like takes away from my love of cinema, but it's certainly like, oh, what, what am I, why am I doing this to myself? And then I watch movies like this, like these road trilogy films. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm inspired to keep going. <laughs> it's like, uh, they're just, they're so beautiful. I don't know. Did any, okay, so Alice in the Cities is currently available still on Hulu. Um, I don't think the other films are streaming or, you know, uh, downloadable anywhere. Uh, but have any of you seen any of these three films? Uh, I have not. I mean, obviously, this is a set I'm so eager to, you know, get into my clutches. But it's it's just going to have to wait for the next sale. Uh, not, I'm, I'm just I'm swamped with other films to watch right now, and I'm, I'm enjoying you know the stuff I do for my blog and and uh, the Eclipse series and all the other projects I'm involved with, but this is one that I will definitely feast on. Even though we've already talked about it for the Chronicles, I won't have any, you know, uh, goal oriented other than just my own curiosity because it looks like a really beautiful set. You know, certainly appreciate the screenshots and some of the other, uh, you know, uh, you know kind of previews you've you've provided uh, it'll be really nice to have a, a top-notch uh, kind of classic criterion edition again uh you know with a slip case and all that other kind of nice features uh it's been a while but uh, not, you know and, and and so yeah this this seems like a pretty uh rich trove to, to to savor and to dig into so i'm eager to get it but it'll be a little while before i uh, actually do yeah, it was very nice to have the actual an actual little book that you that comes with the slipcases to take out. You know, like I'm riding on the bus to t- to go pick up Miranda from school, and so I'm able to actually like carry a little book that com- that came with it to read through uh, the essays included. Um, and it's it's a lot harder to do when it's those little fold out inserts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had seen uh, I'd seen Alice in the Cities, but I. Um... It's been a, was was a while ago on uh, on Hulu, and I, I think actually I, I noted that Wrong Move is available. I'm not sure what version on a Netflix DVD, but I mean coming out late May like this, we're a month away from the the sale. I'll uh, definitely be plopping down my fifty percent off fifty dollars to to buy this then. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these. I actually haven't seen any vendors' films, which. Uh, 
I think annoys my girlfriend who is from very, very near where he's from in Germany. Um, but uh, I'm very much looking forward to watching this set. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a great place to start if you're getting into his films, if you haven't seen anything before. But, you know, Arik, you've got to watch Pina. You've got to watch Paris, Texas. Oh, I have seen Pina. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I have. I love Pina. I forgot about that one. That is such a great movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really hope that Criterion continues this trend of releasing these restored films. And, you know, I hope we get some of the documentaries that have been released on DVD before, uh, you know, on Blu-ray here in the states and you know maybe as a, as a collection there was a dvd box set of or there were a couple of dvd box sets of vendors films but they're both out of print now there's a documentary box set available in the uk on dvd but um i'd say probably just wait mm. until criterion does it eventually it seems like they are they're committed to getting these films out and so uh, it's it's very nice to have this set uh come so soon after um the American Friend, which was a lot of fun to go back and watch. Well, guys, uh, I can hear some of you yawning. I know it's late on the East Coast. And so uh, I think it's time we wrap things up for tonight. Everyone, uh, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Um, I, I, are there any, do you guys have any thoughts on the month overall? Or like, was it, um, you know, your experiences in, in, in well, watching I think them just to, kind of tie together? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just draw the connection between the Easy Rider, kind of the road movie to start the month, and uh, the the road trilogy to end it. I obviously we are talking about the Hollywood connection with the uh, Lonely Place and the Player. So yeah, there are some the, some mm. themes uh, that that seem to be at play here. Yeah, many um, uh, like deconstructions of you know. Uh, you know, traditional kind of 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 movies that were made out there. Like you know, the road movie is kind of a you know like can be a uh, you know, archetype, I guess, or it's, you know, and, but these are all de deconstructions of those, of those tropes of, you know, like the road movie or, um, I don't know, like more traditional stuff, like looks at Hollywood and whatnot. Another very, very strong month and what's shaping up to be just a, just an incredible, incredible year. I mean, I, I know we're, we're closing in on the sort of the, the end half in terms of, uh, or the end quarter in terms of, um, announcements, but it's been just a, really really phenomenal year for criterion so this is this is like the perfect year to have started this podcast it's so much fun yeah and, just, and again just the variety the different uh the nationalities the different genres the different uh, styles of movie making uh that's that's the other thing too just what a what an intriguing balance that you know criterion's put out every every single month of the year so far um you know just just a lot to appreciate you know, where it becomes really difficult to say what's the best release of the month i mean it's just almost like what what mood are you in today uh, that might uh you know alter the the they line up a little bit so yeah i i and i enjoy doing this show i really enjoy that motivation to to dig in the new stuff and uh, have a great conversation with you guys yeah for sure I, I did actually, uh, I mean, the, the easy kind of tie-in, I, I know Ryan likes to look at tie-ins, and I was thinking about this earlier. Of course, the easy tie-in is The Road with Easy Rider and uh, the the Road Trilogy. But, you know, I was thinking you know, The Road does come into play with uh, In a Lonely Place. There's an important point where a decision is made yeah, after some uh, something driving on the road. driving done, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in The Naked Island, there is no road. So well, there's well, there's a, there's a path that switches <laughs> right. back and forth up the hill, and I guess that— <laughs> road between the island right. and the 
and the the town uh, across the water. You know, there's there's traveling yeah. involved. I know it's an island, but in the uh, in the special features to Easy Rider, they mention that the river is God's road. So maybe uh, maybe the 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 water around yes. the island is also God's road. Yeah, I, and I was thinking, you know, just to close it out with the road, the player uh, deals are made on the road and uh, the player. So yeah, oh there, yeah, there absolutely. <laughs> There we go. The road is the theme of the month. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. We will be back this time next month to talk about the June releases. June is shaping up to be another amazing, expensive month. And uh, (laughs) but luckily, the the sale is just right around the corner, as you guys mentioned. Uh, Pretty soon, we'll all be able to uh, plunk down a few dollars and buy a few Criterion releases. All right, everyone. Load up. Yep. <laughs> Prepare. <laughs> uh, those gift cards. Yes. All right. Thanks, listeners, for downloading the show and for all your support for this this new show that we've been doing. Uh, it's fun to get you know all the positive feedback from people who enjoy listening to us discuss these films and giving us a chance to uh, you know talk a little bit more about these titles, whereas uh, you know grouped all together. All right. See you next time.